northern border of Moab and things are good. They have no idea of the threat uh, that was um, against them. They are living peacefully. They think things are good. Let me just encourage us all that even when things are good, and I pray that they're blessed. I pray that we all have peaceful existences, that we have good food, good friends, good place to, to live, that our jobs are, are great, all of those things. But just remember that when things are good, it is not time to let down your guard. Because you see, the men, the people, began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They have been enticed by the women of Moab. This was Balaam's idea. Balaam basically said this, listen, I can't change the mind of the immutable, changeless, changeless God. He will not curse his people. But I got another plan, King Balak. Here's what you do. Send some of your young women over into the camp of the Israelites. They've been wandering. Those guys have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Your daughters are going to look good to him. And let them seduce the men of Israel. This will be in violation of the covenant that, he, that they have made with God. And, not, and this will eventually will bring God's covenant curse upon them. I can't curse them. But if they sin against their God, God will curse them. So we can get this curse to happen. We just have to go about it a different way. And so the men are enticed. And the plan seems to to work as it was intended. But note this, that not only was there sexual immorality, but then these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and so the people ate and bowed down to the gods of Moab. They then accept the pagan rituals. They have been enticed by the ideology of a godless nation, and they, they adopt pagan worship. I don't think that we can separate the physical act from the spiritual result. And so there is an enticement, a lure. They are hooked. They then are invited to a pagan meal where there is probably some good food, which probably looks good to them. After all, they've been eating manna for 40 years and they've grown tired and weary of it. And now, not only do we have attractive women, but we got good food and now the people are bowing down before pagan gods. They have been assimilated into a pagan culture to the place where they are now adopting and accepting and joyfully accepting the ideology of a godless nation. And so it says, Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Yoked himself, joined in union committed themselves to Baal of Peor. Let me just real quickly um, 
give a little insight or a little background into Baal of Peor. First of all, if you've read the Bible much, you'll see that Baal is a very common name or a very common pagan deity. Um, and so this is Baal of Peor. Um, remember, gods are local um, in the ancient Near East. So this was the ba- Baal just means master. It was a term for a pagan deity. And this is the Baal who rules over the area or the region of Peor. As you read through the Bible, you'll see various Baals. They rule over certain areas. This is the Baal then who was believed to be the master of this particular area of Peor. And Baal was the storm god. He was a god of fertility. And so basically um, the way it works is if you want to make certain that your crops grow, you go sow the seed and then you would engage in a temp- with a temple prostitute where you would finalize that um, that would guarantee the fertility of your crops. And so it was a um, very uh, sensual religion. And so they have yoked themselves, they have joined themselves in union with the God, this fertility God, who has not delivered them out of the land of Egypt, has not delivered them from the house of slavery, has not kept them in the wilderness, has not fed them in the wilderness, has not fought their battles and shown them to be victorious, has not provided water for them, has done nothing for them. Because this God doesn't exist, but there is a living God in heaven who created all things. This is the God whom Israel is in covenant with, and they abandon him and join themselves in union with this pagan deity, and they have now been fully assimilated into a godless culture. So let me just give you a quick summary as we go along here. The initial physical act naturally led to religious, to a religious and spiritual act. I don't think that that is um, a stretch to make that connection. The common physical bond naturally produces a much deeper communion. They then engage in a communal feast. This was a substitute for what Yahweh had prescribed, and that was followed by the bowing down to pagan deities. And so the people now are joined in union, both to the people of Moab and to the gods of Moab. In fact, this is what God um, had said and was... uh, Let me just read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 15 and 16. Listen to what God says about this very situation. Before this situation even comes about, this is what God says in verse 13. He says, you shall tear down their altars, and speaking of the pagan nations whom you're going to encounter, you shall tear down their altars, you shall break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited to eat of this sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after other gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This is exactly what God said. You will have nothing to do 
with the ideologies and the customs of these, of these pagan neighbors whom you are going to encounter. You are a separate people. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. But let me tell you, if you do not do these things, you will end up joining with them. And when you join with them, the curses that we agreed to in the covenant are going to, befall, are going to fall upon you. And so they have joined in union with the people and with the gods of Moab, God who had freed Israel from the yoke of Egypt, who had barred, um, who had kept the people of Israel from returning to Egypt, going back to slavery, have now enslaved themselves to another master. They are unequally yoked. They have sold themselves into slavery by violating at least the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make a graven image. And remember why you are not to have any other gods before me. Because I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one. Baal didn't do that. Baal doesn't even exist. People may worship him, but there is one God. Isaiah says, in the book of Isaiah, God says, Speaking of other gods, he says, I know of no others. There is no other God. We worship all sorts of things. And so they have yoked themselves to that which doesn't even exist, and they have violated the covenant, and God is going to bring the covenant curses upon them. So that's the rebellion. That's the rebellion that we see. Let's talk a little bit now about the wrath. Seen rebellion, and now we are going to look at the wrath that is provoked. Verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Well, that's a bad place to be. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And one of the things that we're going to see is that a plague has broken out. We don't know much about the plague, some, some sort of plague, but note this, a plague breaks out and their new master, whom they have yoked themselves to, Baal of Peor, is utterly powerless to deliver them from the plague. In other words, just as there is no power of hell or scheme of man who is able to separate them from the love of God, there is also no scheme able to save them from God's just wrath. Here's the problem for them. Here's the problem for Israel at this point. They need God to save them because only he can save them. Their problem is that God is their enemy. This is a problem. Only God can save. But God is their adversary. Only God can save. But when God is your enemy, you're in trouble. And this is the natural state of man. God is the only one who can save us from our sin. That's it. You cannot save yourself. You cannot offer up enough good works. You cannot be nice enough, kind enough, generous enough, loving enough. You cannot. You will always fall short of the glory of God. Always. Which makes God your enemy. You are now in a really difficult situation. I can't please God. I can't save myself. The only one who can save me is God. And God is my enemy. I wonder, is there a way to turn that around? How could I be reconciled back to God so that he is no longer my enemy, 
but my friend, or more importantly, my father? How does that get turned around? That's an important question. That's why we gather here every Lord's Day to talk about that solution. At this point, though, we're dealing with the wrath of God's just wrath against the people. And they are dying by the tens of thousands. And God calls Moses to execute the leaders publicly. Basically, it says, hang them in the sun. I think perhaps more um, precisely, it is they will be impaled upon a stake. I think that's a little bit, and I think that will play out as we go along, and I think we'll, we'll see the, uh, um, the relevance and the importance of that. In other words, this is to be public. The punishment is public. See, these were the leaders. They were men whose position was more than just a title. They were actually called to do something. They were the leaders. They were called to do something, not just have a nice title and sit in a corner office and kick their feet up and smoke cigars and hang out with others. They had a vocation. They were called to actually do something. And one of the key things these leaders were to do was to protect their families and to protect their clan from internal threats such as being lured to worship other gods. This was their job. And it implies here they are called to protect their people from both external and internal threats, but because they didn't, not just simply because they failed, the implication is that they participated in and led the people in this sin. They were the leaders. They invented ways. They they led the people into rebellion against the God who had delivered them. These were the false shepherds of the book of Ezekiel. These were men who actually destroyed by their actions the people who had been entrusted to their care. And certainly, we see like parallel as we live out our lives in the church. In the church, we would hold that the congregation is the final authority for decisions being made, but God has called elders to protect the church. They are to protect the church from false teaching, That is probably the primary target of the elders' responsibility. It is not the sole issue. Elders are to protect the church from external and internal threats. One of the ways we do that is we teach people the gospel so that when you hear the gospel, you know what it is. And if any elder gets up and says something contrary to the gospel, you know. You know, and you're saying, that's not right. That's not the gospel. And we reject that. You are leading us astray. The elders in in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 33, are told to pay attention to themselves. 
to remain steadfast in the faith. In other words, if you don't take care of yourselves, you will be ill-equipped to take care of those put in your charge. Your job is to take care of the people in the church that God has given to you. You are their shepherds. You are an under-shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. The elders are the under-shepherd, but we take care of um, the congregation. But first, you need to pay attention to yourselves that you are steadfast in the faith. Otherwise, you will lead the people into sin. See, if the elders are swayed, if the leaders are swayed by the lure of, of assimilation, we will imperil others. If I start believing some lie out there and nobody says anything, we will, be, we will all be led into a pit. This is helping us understand the importance of leadership. And let me just give you, a, and this was public. They were to be publicly displayed as rebellious. Perhaps um, an illustration or a thought. I wonder how many lives have been destroyed and affected by this same corruption. So you think of whether it be large denominations, small churches, smaller denominations, how many leaders have sinned against their members in horrific ways, in abusive ways, and the leadership of the church swept it under the rug, hid it, and just said, here, go find another job somewhere else. And the abuse continues. This is a horrible crime. It needed to be a public. It eventually needed to come out that this man is an abusive man and has no business in shepherding the people of God his, the sunlight needs to be... doesn't mean he can't be a Christian or repent or anything like that, but he should not be put back into a place of leadership where he will destroy other people. You see, folks, church, the installation of a church elder is a serious matter. Those who lead God's people into sin face serious consequences for being the agents of temptation. Folks, it is serious. This is why Paul says, let not many of you be teachers for you incur a greater condemnation. But it shows also the importance of leadership. So now we have seen the redemption and the wrath publicly display them, impale them, put them out in the sun so everybody sees the results of this rebellion. Going, man, that's really harsh, yeah? But not only do we see rebellion and not only do we see wrath, but we also see redemption. And when we look at verse 6, it says, And behold, one of the people of Israel 
came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I'm just going to focus on that weeping at the tent, uh, at the tent, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. First of all, it appears that people in the congregation have been called out for their rebellion against God and they are now in the process of repentance. They are weeping. They are repenting of their sin. Oh my goodness. Perhaps they're only doing so because they see their brothers and sisters dying. Perhaps it's because it's a genuine repentance, but they are in the place of the whole congregation repenting of their rebellion against a holy God. And in the midst of that, we see rebellion, the the depth of the rebellion. I'm going to get to the redemption, but there is one more display of the depth of the rebellion that has infected the camp. In the midst of the plague that is due to sexual immorality and idolatry, a man flaunts his rebellion. He just, the people are repenting and he just marches through the camp with a Midianite woman and basically goes in, gets, receives the blessing of his family... And there's a little bit of discussion about uh, um, he brought this Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation. And um, he went into the chamber. They don't know if that's a, the, uh, like a marriage tent. It's kind of a separate tent or if it is just a, a room within a larger tent like the bedroom. And basically this guy just walks through camp takes him to his family and says, Mom, Dad, look at my new girlfriend. And off they go. The parents seem to endorse this. Nobody seems to have a problem with it. He does it as though this is just what you do. There's no shame. There's no concern. And think about this. This is in the midst of of a plague that has come about because of this very act. In other words, he cares not for others who are afflicted. All he cares about is fulfilling his own desires. The assimilation is complete. He has so united, this is a demonstration of being so united with the paganism that is prevalent amongst this nation that he gives no thought of the God who has blessed him. His actions are not seen to be in conflict with God's command. Everybody says, oh yeah, of course, that's what you do. Nobody sees his actions as odd. Nobody sees his actions as detrimental. Nobody sees his actions as something that should be dealt with. And it's like, oh yeah. That's how assimilated the people have become in this culture. Well, here we get to the place of redemption because here we are introduced to a man by the name of Phineas. Now, we need to understand who Phineas is to help us here. Otherwise, we might run into some trouble in just a bit. But Phineas is a priest. He is the grandson of Aaron. So Aaron is the high priest. Eliezer is Aaron's son. Phineas is Eliezer's son. He is the grandson. He is in line to be high priest, but he is a priest. And as a priest, one of his primary functions is to protect 
the temple area and to protect the people from pollution. That's what he does. We've seen that through the book of Numbers. That's what they do. They protect, they guard from defilement. And so Phineas, a priest, with the task to protect the community from being defiled, he takes up his responsibility. Here is a guy who says, wait a second, this ain't right. I'm going to do something about it. And he slays the violators. And he stops the plague by his actions. In other words, he viewed sin as God viewed sin. In fact, God even says that. that He sees things the same way I see things. And he turns away the wrath of God. Maybe this is an appropriate time to say, how about us? Do we view sin as God views sin? Or do we write it off and say, well, you know, it's just the way it's done in our culture. He is ultimately commended by God and his actions turn away God's wrath. And let me just very quickly mention this because I do not want to give any false ideas to somebody listening uh, who's here today or who might hear this on the internet. This is not a justification for vigilante action. Phineas was not a vigilante. He was functioning as his role in the covenant community as a priest. This was his job. This does not then provide any endorsement or any justification for, you see, people bombing abortion clinics and shooting abortion doctors. You have no justification whatsoever for that. None whatsoever. This text does not provide that for you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This was something that was allowed in ancient Israel under um, that theocratic government. We are not given that authority. There is no vigilante justice. One of the things as I move along that I want to point out is that the man who was killed, his name was Zimri, and his girlfriend's name was Cosby. I'm going to focus on Zimri because he should have known better. His father was a chief. His father was a leader. He was a leader of the tribe of the Simeonites. And his dad, a leader, allowed his son and commended his son and perhaps even led his son and encouraged his son to rebel against God Almighty. It appears his father has endorsed this relationship and so we see how depraved very quickly Israel has become. And then at the end here we see in verse 16, God says, harass the Midianites. In other words, drive them out. We're going to see this a little later on in chapter 31 again. But drive them out, harass them. Why? Because they've enticed you. They are a lure. They are a temptation. Drive out that which tempts you. Because of their participation in the seduction of God's people, 
the Moabites become an object of hostility because they've seduced you to sin. All right, so there's the story. Let me, uh, let me derive some gospel connections here. And um, um, In our gospel connections, in your notes, I put pollution as public, but I, I think I was a little limited there because not only is pollution public, but the, in everything we do as a church is communal. We live in a day and age of individual self-expression. In fact, individual self-expression is seen to be the pinnacle of freedom. That is, to be free is to be unrestrained by cultural norms, that there should be no taboos. The only taboos are taboos. That all the, 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 the barriers that, that um, establish a culture need to be torn down. The only taboo is to restrict me from expressing myself. Our mantra today is you be you. Just express yourself however you want and it's fine. It doesn't matter because the only thing you need to do is be you. This individualism, however, is never a private matter. And sin is always public and it always affects the community. Folks, the church by definition is communal. The church by definition is not a bunch of individuals being themselves and just functioning however they want. We gather together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church is not some privatized thing, just me and Jesus. I'll just go out and I can worship in the woods or on the lake or whatever. Yes, you can do those things. But the church, by definition, what does the word ecclesia mean? It means an assembly. It is communal by definition. And we are our brother's keeper. We are to, as church members, One of the things we do as church members is that we say that you can hold me accountable. You can hold me accountable and I can hold you accountable. This is what Paul said. He said, if anybody preaches a different gospel than the one I preach, let him be accursed. If I or an angel from heaven preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. He's telling the Galatian church, you can hold me, the apostle Paul, accountable to gospel precision. If I teach something different, you, the Galatian church, can hold me, the great apostle, accountable. And so we come to this place, this necessary place of what we call church discipline. It is not, well, it's not fashionable and we are often called not being loving But one of the traditional marks of the church, in other words, is what makes a church a church? I always ask my students that. What makes a church a church? Or what makes a church? Do two or three people gathered in the produce section of Walmart, let me be more precise, do two or three believers in the produce section of Walmart make a church? And the answer is no. What makes a church a church? The traditional answer has been this. Both Luther and the Swiss reformers all 
agreed the traditional answer is what makes a church a church is the right preaching of God's word and the right administration of the sacraments. Well, we're Baptists, so I have to say ordinances. So the right administration of the ordinances. So I don't lose my Baptist card. I'd hate that for that to happen. Later, the Belgic Confession added that where the, the right administration of church discipline as a third mark. I'd add a couple more, but we won't get into that. But certainly that is a minimal requirement of a church. The right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism and church discipline. Here at Church on Randall Place, we practice church discipline on a regular basis, and we define it in two ways. We define it passively and actively. So passively is um, just this. Um, right now, we are all experiencing church discipline. Church discipline is just in a Bible study or a sermon, somebody calling us to covenant faithfulness. It might be you sitting down with a friend, having a cup of coffee and saying, brother, how's your prayer life going? Well, it's not going very well. Hey, let me encourage you to, uh, to stand firm. Let me encourage you to, uh, um, to be consistent in prayer. Why don't I call you next week and we can pray together? That's what we would call passive church discipline. We're calling people to covenant faithfulness. That's what we're doing. So in that sense, if I were to ask you, have you ever been the object of church discipline, every single one of us could raise our hands because we all have participated. We've been the object and we've perhaps been the um, recipient as well as the one who gives it. But then there's also active church discipline and this is when a person lives in such a way that we as a church cannot see evidence of regeneration. That is, that their sin is public, it is heinous, and it is unrepentant. So let me, so somebody whose sin is heinous, public, and unrepentant, something needs to be done. And we would say, we do not see evidence of the Spirit of God in your life. We can no longer confirm that you are a follower of Christ, and so we will excommune you. Really, we will withhold the elements of of communion would be one thing. So let me say something also real, well, I I shouldn't say the word real quickly. Let me um, say this, that if your sin is grievous and it is public and it is repentant, we will walk with you with incredible patience. It's unrepentant, that's a different story. But those who are repentant, who know that, man, I'm fa- I fall, I fall all the time. What am I going to do? Woe is me. Let me tell you, the people, I pray that the people of this church, myself, the, the elders, will walk with you and do whatever it takes to make certain that you live a life in such a way that you are growing and being nurtured in the grace of our Lord. You see, where discipline is absent, one cannot expect to find the Spirit's blessing. Another gospel connection is a hope is hope for the deeply flawed. 
I mean, how many times are we troubled at our own lack of spiritual progress? But let me encourage you, if, if God maintains and saves the people of Israel, he will likewise save us. You see, Israel was in need of much more than just a moral code. They needed more than a list of commands. They needed even more. God was dwelling in their midst, and they needed even more than that. They needed more than a great leader like Moses. They needed something greater than a, a, uh, a visible priesthood. Israel as a people needed to be remade. They needed a new heart. And in this, let me encourage you that Jesus becomes the new Israel. He succeeds where she fails. He wandered in the desert for 40 days and he overcame the temptations of the evil one. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and failed at every step. Jesus never committed adultery, neither physical nor spiritual. And perhaps we should note that Phineas, the zeal of Phineas foreshadows Christ, whose zeal for the Lord's house consumed him. In John chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus cleanses the temple and it is pointed out that the zeal for his house consumes him and that zeal led him to Calvary where he was pierced, not for his own sins, but for ours and brought an end to the curse of sin. God poured out his wrath, not on the adulterers, but on, upon his perfect substitute. It's reminded me of Isaiah chapter 53. And I saw it from both Zimri and Cosby's side of things, and I saw it from the side of Christ. So let me look at it from the adulterer's point of view, the pagan's point of view. But we are pierced for our own transgressions. We are crushed for our own iniquities. We are sheep who've gone astray. We've turned to our own way and the Lord has laid our iniquity upon us. We are lambs that are led to the slaughter and it is the will of the Lord to crush us and to put us to grief. And if you are here today standing in your own righteousness outside of Christ, this is your refrain. You will be pierced for your own iniquities. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be a true judgment and you will bear the wrath of God on behalf of your sin. And if I were to stop here, this would be terrible news. But let me read this from the view of Christ. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I'm Cosby, I'm Zimri, and instead of us being pierced, he was pierced. The leaders were to be impaled on the stake and instead Christ was pierced and impaled upon a cross. 
Upon Him my chastisement came that brought us peace. And by His wounds I am healed. I'm like a sheep that's gone astray. And yet the Lord has laid upon Him my iniquity. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open His mouth. And the Lord, it was God's will to crush him and put him to grief. He bore the sins of many, including mine, and makes intercession for me. This is the gospel that we have sinned against a holy God and he is our enemy. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Christ Jesus is the Son of God and being joined in union with Christ, you will be a friend of God because you are in His Son and He loves His Son. And all who are in Him, He loves. And you can be a friend of God by calling upon Him and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And He will in no way cast you out. And one final thing, just as Israel was told to harass those who lured them into sin, God has called us to put the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh to kill that sinful nature that beguiles us and causes us to flaunt our sin and we can do so through the indwelling spirit whom God gives us in Jesus Christ. So today I would call upon you to call upon the name of the Lord. He is faithful. Remember when we did our, our, our assurance of salvation that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That is true. And we can rest upon it. So I would hope that you would assess where you are and that you would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Father, have mercy upon us this day. Grant us grace and favor. Let your name be honored.